This morning, we're continuing our look at the idea of of what Scripture says about the I am statements of Christ. We began this study a few weeks ago, and I don't know if this is something that you've ever taken the time to look at, but throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus makes a series of I am statements. And these are all statements that are meant to show us His divinity. They're statements that are meant to show us His divine power and the work that He's accomplishing in our midst. And a few weeks ago, we actually began this series by looking at Exodus chapter 3, where the Lord reveals that His name is, I am who I am. And so we've been continuing our look at what the Scripture tells us in relation to these I am statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John as He alludes to that statement. But today we're talking about what Jesus said in John 8 and John 9, where He says, I am the light of the world. Now, we're only going to be looking at one verse from John 8. We're going to spend most of our time in John 9, but I'm going to start us off with looking at John 8, verse 12, and then we're going to jump right over to John chapter 9, verse 1, and look down to verse 7. But it says this in John 8, verse 12. We read, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then if you jump to John 9, verse 1, it says there, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege to be able to spend time together this morning worshiping you, looking at your word together, studying these things, um, just recognizing who you are and what you've come to do. And so, Lord, we pray that as we look at this portion of Scripture from John's Gospel, that you'd help us to understand more about your nature, and also how you choose to use your nature to impact us. Lord, we know that we would be lost without you. We would be nothing without you. And so, Lord, we're grateful for what you've chosen to do on our behalf. And we commit this time, as we look at your word together, we commit it to you, Lord. We're grateful for this privilege, and we pray that you prepare our minds and our hearts to understand what we're looking at together today. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Growing up, I was blessed with great friends, and actually some very unique friends. And uh, that was particularly true of the friends that I made when I was working in summer camping ministries. I had the privilege to work at two different summer camps uh, during my teenage years, even during my college years, I continued to do that. And uh, it was a huge blessing to spend time with and interact with and be friends with a variety of people that I had the privilege to work with. But one of those friends, um, a guy that I became particularly close to, Uh, had a unique life story that I think about often. His name was Steve, and he had a glass eye. 
Uh, his, I think it was his left eye, maybe his right eye, I forget now actually, but it, one of his eyes was glass. Now Steve and I first met when we were campers. Uh, we were camping together and uh, he told me about that. He'd actually from time to time do some funny things with it. And uh, it was very entertaining to us when he would do these things. But we both became great friends, particularly when we were hired to work on the summer maintenance crew together. And they bunked us together. They put two guys per cabin. And so Steve and I roomed together. We bunked together. And so, as you can imagine, you know, when you're rooming together with somebody, what you typically do is you stay up late all throughout the summer, even though you're not supposed to, but you're up you're talking, you get to know every last detail about each other's life, whether you want to know those details or not. So Steve heard all of my stories, and I heard all of Steve's stories, and Steve told me how the issue with his eye came to be. When he was about eight years old, he took a BB gun into the woods not too far from his house. And he began just shooting random things, just shooting stuff here, shooting stuff there. And eventually, he came across something that was metal. And when he described it to me, I don't think he knew what it was at the time. I actually think it had to, I think it was a boundary marker. I think it was like a property line. And there was something metal there to mark the boundary, uh, to mark the property line. And when he saw that, he shot at it. And you could see where this is going, right? One of the BBs ricocheted back and it hit his eye directly. And... uh, you know, obviously he was in a lot of discomfort, a lot of pain. He was bloody. He was scared. He ran home to his parents. His parents rushed him to the hospital, but unfortunately they were unable to save the eye. And I remember Steve telling me at one point, he said, honestly, he said, that's the only time in my life I ever saw my dad cry when he had to take me to the hospital because of what I had done to my eye. Only time I I remember ever seeing him cry. Now, thankfully, Steve's other eye was fine. Steve's other eye was intact. He was able to retain some of his sight, but he, he definitely lost the first eye. And I bring that up in the context of the Scripture we're looking at today because it brings up a variety of things related to sight, related, related to seeing. Sight is a blessing. It's a blessing naturally. It's also a blessing supernaturally. And in the portion of Scripture that we're looking at today, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Now, there are a couple things he was getting at at with this, multiple things he was getting at here. And part of what he was telling us here in this assertion that he is the light of the world is that he has the power to grant sight to those who were unable to see deeper things that had eternal consequences. But what else do you suppose he was trying to get at when he said, I am the light of the world? of the world, because it's a statement that's deeper than just surface level. It's a statement that has multiple applications. Well, one of the things that Jesus reveals when we take a look at what he tells us, and we'll start again at John eight 12, I'll reread that for us in a moment here, is that he liberates us from walking in darkness. So Jesus is the light of the world. He liberates us from walking in darkness. Let me reread that verse. John 8, 12 says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Then he goes on to say, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Right now, we're in the process of making a few updates around our family room. I just decided, we've lived in our house now for a little over 11 years, and 
All the things that, that we updated 11 years ago, after 11 years of pretty heavy use, you know, we got four kids, we got all their friends, we've got us using it, just kind of looked around and we thought, all right, some of these things are ready for retirement, you know? So we're about to update a few things. I tried to fix the carpet yesterday. It had a ripple in it. My son Daniel helped me out with that. I got it a little bit reduced. I think I may just end up replacing the carpet at some point, but we're getting a different couch. We're updating where the love seat was. We're, we're uh, doing a couple odds and ends. We're even going to paint the trim around the fireplace. But we're, when it's all said and done, we're going to pick out some new lamps. And I, you know, I can't believe I'm at the season of my life where that excites me. <laughs> and, but it does. <laughs> I was actually in a store the other day snapping pictures of lamps. And I thought, well, we'll get some of these. Because, all right, and you know, maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong about this. But I think lamps kind of set, a, set the tone for a room, in a sense. The kind of light they give off, it, it, it gives the room its feel. Maybe I'm wrong about this, maybe I'm right. You know, some of you say, no, I think the paint. No, I think the furniture. I don't know. I think the lamps have something to do with it. So we're going to be picking out new lamps. And, you know, practically speaking, when you have a lamp, you're not stumbling in the darkness, right? It's got a practical application as well. Well, spiritually speaking, one of the things that Jesus is getting at here when you look at at John chapter 8, verse 12, is that spiritually speaking, we have all experienced what it looks like, what it means to walk in darkness. Now, at the time that was taking place, we probably did not realize we were walking in darkness. It probably wasn't something that was abundantly clear to us in our minds, because darkness was what we were accustomed to. Darkness was what we knew best. And most of the people in our lives were also walking in darkness, so it really didn't seem out of place to us. But God did not design us to walk in darkness. You and I have not been designed by God to walk in darkness. When He he spoke creation into existence, and when He fashioned us, and when He put the breath of life within us, He did not create us to walk in darkness. It is not his desire that we do so. And as Jesus in this passage here, as he's revealing his divine nature, particularly in this context to groups of Jewish religious leaders, he explained to them that he is the light of the world. And those who follow him will not walk in darkness any longer, but will experience true spiritual life, true light, that comes from him. Now, at the time Jesus was making these statements, as he's making these comments that we could see here in John 8, and then we're going to see a little bit further in John chapter 9 in just a few moments. But at the time he was making these statements, he was in Jerusalem. And the Jewish people at that time were celebrating the festival of booths. And as they're celebrating the festival of booths, one of the things that was typically done during that time is that in the temple area, they would have these large lamps. And they would light these large lamps, and these large lamps um, would give off a whole bunch of light, and the goal was that they would signify or symbolize or or bring people's attention back to the fact that when the people of Israel were being led from Egypt toward the promised land, that the Lord went before them in a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. But at nighttime, so that they could move at night or so that they could have light at night, He would go before them as a pillar of fire. 
and he would illuminate their path. He would show them where to go. And so at the time Jesus is making these statements, keep in mind the context he's in. He's in Jerusalem. They're celebrating the festival of booths. They're commemorating the fact that that light, the light of the Lord, led them toward the promised land. And they have these big lights that are burning in Jerusalem, in the temple area. And you have Jesus now saying, I am the light of the world. So they're looking at this symbolism, but now they're hearing these statements that he's making. Scripture reveals to us that the presence of the Lord was in the midst of that fire that hundreds of years earlier had led the people of Israel toward the promised land. But here Christ is saying, that's me. That's me. Look at what it tells us in Exodus chapter 13. Verse 21, it says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. And again, it says, And the Lord went before them in. He's in. His presence is in these things as He's displaying this to the people of Israel. So here when Jesus is saying that He is the light of the world. When He's referring to Himself as the light of the world, He's doing so to a group of people who were familiar with Israel's history. They're familiar with these things. They understand the symbolism. They get what He's saying here. They could have perceived the connection that Jesus is making with His statement and the fire that's referenced in Exodus chapter 13. This likely could have dawned on them, or would have dawned on them. And and in fact, this was the type of stuff that used to get people most angry at Jesus during the course of His earthly ministry, when He would make statements that displayed His divinity. When He made statements about His divine nature, that's what would irritate people most about what He was doing. But Christ is... He's displaying in his statement here, and when we look back in Exodus 13, basically what we're finding is that the presence of Christ was within that pillar, leading the people of Israel to the promised land. Now we're starting there this morning, looking at John 8:12 and Exodus 13, and thinking about these things through what Jesus is saying, because Christ has called us out of darkness and into his light. That's what he's getting at here when he's talking about these things. So let me ask you a question that I want you to think about for just a moment. Is there any aspect of your life at present, right here, right now, that you would be uncomfortable having that aspect of your life exposed to the light of Christ? Is there any aspect of what's going on in your mind or what's going on in your heart or what you've invited into your life that you would feel uncomfortable having that particular area exposed to the light of Christ? And when I'm asking that, what I'm asking is this. Is there any aspect of darkness that you're still cherishing or hiding or holding close, just trying to hold on to it like it's a treasured possession? The funny thing is, or the ironic thing is, that the darkness, it wants to kill you. The darkness, it wants to destroy you. But Christ is offering us light through knowing Him. And what he's encouraging us to do is to cherish him, to cherish Christ, not to, not to desire or cherish the dark allure of wickedness that wants nothing more than to ruin and destroy you. I won't use names, but I think most of you will know who I'm referring to. This week I was uh, just checking out some news stories, and I happened to come across a news story about a, a popular Christian celebrity who was caught 
in some form of sexual impropriety. When I heard that, I thought, oh, great. Now, how does that happen? Well, it happens a little bit at a time. You invite a little bit of darkness into your life, and then you get used to it. And then you invite a little bit more in. And a little bit more in until it starts to feel normal, until your conscience doesn't even feel bothered by it. And then before you know it, you're cherishing the very thing that's trying to destroy you. And this person just had a Netflix special canceled. This person just had a book deal taken away. This person just had his reputation demolished. Why? Because if you invite darkness into your life, you're playing with something that wants to destroy you, and eventually it will. And so Christ looks at us and He says, I did not create you to walk in darkness. I created you to walk in my light. Don't invite something into your life or into your heart or into your thinking or into your behavior that has the goal of destroying your reputation and, the, and damaging, you could say, the reputation of the God you claim to serve. Don't invite it into your life. Walk in the light of Christ. And then the Scripture gives us an example of what this looks like. It gives us a tangible example, a visible example of what Christ was accomplishing. And here you see, you see compassion that Jesus is showing. So as we jump to chapter 9, looking at the first few verses there, we see compassion that Jesus shows for those who as of yet cannot see. Look at what it tells us in, in John 9, starting with verse 1, down to verse 3. It says, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Let's pause there for just a moment. What's easier to do? To interact with those who have a need or to avoid them? By the way, I think the answer to that question is obvious, right? Uh, It's a lot easier to avoid those who have a need. But that's not what Jesus did. He chose not to avoid someone who had a need. During the course of his earthly ministry, you you see repeatedly Jesus showing compassion to those who were referred to as the least of these. You know, those that that had needs that, that really, ultimately, only Christ could ultimately fulfill. And so Jesus does this throughout the course of his earthly ministry. He showed compassion to those who had needs. He interacted with those that others were avoiding. Recently, I was talking to a friend who was telling me a story about what it was like for her when she was growing up. And she said she couldn't figure out why, but when she was younger, she felt like it was very difficult for her to make close friends, particularly when she was in middle school. And she said at the time she felt ignored by her peers. And she even said, as an adult, the pain of being avoided by them during that time is still something that comes regularly back to her mind as an adult. And I was thinking about that and looking at this portion of Scripture because you have a person here in this portion of Scripture who for the largest portion of his life is essentially avoided by others or tolerated by others or put up with by others. But I'm assuming he doesn't feel like people are letting themselves get very close to him. And so at the time when these events are taking place, you have this this man who was blind Jesus sees him. Now, typically, you would see this around Jerusalem. You'd have people with disabilities who were begging 
and they would beg on the streets of Jerusalem for people to help them. They were often forced to rely on the kindness of people that they didn't even know, people who maybe they hoped would feel compassion for them, just to meet their daily needs, because in that particular context, they didn't have very many other options to have those needs met. And apparently that was the case for this man that Jesus chose to approach. He's begging, he's blind, he's got needs that he's trying to have met, but he's dependent on the compassion and kindness often of people he doesn't even know. And by the way, it was also assumed, so imagine this, okay? Imagine if you were in this context. It was assumed that if you had some kind of disability in that particular context, that it was likely the result of God judging you. That it was the fruit of judgment, that you were being judged, either because of your sin or possibly because of the sin of your parents. Now, you might wonder why that was the case, why they would think that. And many people believe it it, it comes down to, at least in part, to their misunderstanding of how to apply Exodus chapter 34, verse 7. So I'm going to show that verse to us here, and I want you to see the whole context, because they were looking at one part of it and not really looking at the whole thing. But in Exodus 34, verse 7, it says this. So it's speaking of God, and it says that He keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Okay, so let's start with that. So what is God's nature? He's, he's compassionate. He's kind. He shows steadfast love for thousands. He forgives iniquity. He forgives transgression. He forgives sin. Isn't that part of, you know, even as we gather here today and study the Word of God together, isn't that one of the things that your heart is right now celebrating? Isn't that one of the things that right now your heart is grateful for? Even when we sing songs together and we pray together, aren't you grateful for the forgiveness that the Lord has shown us and the compassion that He's shown us and how tender He's been with us? But then it also says, but who will know or excuse me, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Speaking about the consequences for rebellion against him. And we all deal with the consequences of sin, do we not? You know, Scripture tells us that Adam and Eve in the garden, they rebelled against the Lord. Now, some of us, have you ever looked at that portion of Scripture and said, I wasn't there. Why do I have to deal with sin in my life? I wasn't there. Why am I being punished for what they did? Well, Scripture tells us, no, guess what? In effect, you were there. In root form, you were there, and you would have done the exact same thing that they did. So there are consequences for sin, but many people apparently in this particular context would look at a person, if you were born with a disability or if you had something like that that developed, they would look at you and they would say, the only reason that this could be the case is because of sin either in your life or in the life of of your parents. And so that's what the disciples were actually wondering about as well when they see this man who's been born blind and they're about to pass him by. And so Jesus explained to his disciples, he said, look, this man's blindness was not because of judgment. His blindness is actually a strategic part of God's sovereign plan to display his glory and to prompt unbelieving hearts to experience redemptive faith. That's what Jesus was communicating here. That's the mindset behind the words that he's saying. He's saying this isn't the result of sin. This is part of a plan. This is part of the sovereign plan of God to display glory, to display His glory. Let me say this, by the way. Do you ever question God's compassion when you're going through something difficult? 
as if he's forgotten you, as if he's compassionate toward others but really harsh with you? Do you ever find yourself in a spot where you're questioning whether God is actually a compassionate God when you're going through something that really you would love to not be going through? It's interesting. I, sometimes I, you know, I, I actually went through a season of my life where I had several trials right in a row, and it started to make me a little bit fatalistic. And I thought, okay, what's next? And you're kind of afraid of what's the next shoe that's going to drop, right? What's the next thing that's going to happen? What's the next thing that's going to happen? As if this is what life is all about, right? Trying to predict the next trial. And I remember at one point just saying to the Lord, this is a, a, a season in my early 20s, I just remember saying to the Lord, Lord, right now, can I just have a break like, can I just have a respite? I just, I'm not, I feel like I need time to heal up from a few of these things. Can I just heal up from this for a little bit before the next thing comes? But you know what's interesting about going through seasons like that? And I'm sure all of us probably have stories that we could testify. You look back at seasons like that, and was it not during those seasons when your prayer life deepened, your faith strengthened, and you just as a person grew? I, I find with me, it's, not, it's typically not when everything's going easy and fine and I have no thought in the world that I, I do my best growing. I tend to do my best growing under pressure. And so now and then, the Lord strategically will put a little something in my life and He'll be like, guess what time it is, John? I'm like, what? what? What time is it? It's time for you to grow again. It's like, I, I don't know if I want to grow yet. I just want to stay put, you know? You heard, I'm buying a new couch. Can I just sit on that and be comfy? You cannot. You will grow. But do you think that the day will come when our faith will mature to the point when we'll learn to trust the Lord, even in the midst of painful circumstances, believing that He has a purpose for everything He's allowed to happen? Wouldn't you say that would be a mark of a mature faith? That not just after the trial is completed, but that during it, we could look at it and say, all right, Lord, during the trial, I'm going to trust you that you have a purpose for this and something good will come from it. I believe that's a mark of maturity. That's something I'm asking the Lord, help me get there. Help me get there that not just afterward when I'm looking back at it, but in the midst of it, I can look to you and say, all right, Lord, if you've allowed this to happen, there's got to be a purpose for this. And I'm going to trust you that you are good and that you are compassionate and you are kind. And here in this portion of Scripture, we see Jesus displaying compassion for this man who was blind. We also see that Jesus shows us that, listen, there's stuff going on here and you don't want to waste the time you've been given. You don't want to waste it. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says this, We must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, and he says it again, I am the light of the world. Now, I'm at a season of life where it feels like time is passing by quicker and quicker and quicker. A year used to sound like a long time to me, but during the course of this month, I'll have the opportunity to see a few people that really I only ever see once a year. And it feels like I just saw them. But in my, I'm, I realize I only see that person and that person once a year, but it literally feels like I just saw them. And time goes by quickly, and I'm sure some of you could testify to that as well. It just seems like the longer you live, the faster time seems to just march on. And I'm also becoming increasingly mindful of the fact that the Lord doesn't want me to waste the time that He's given me. Because that time's going to be over before I know it. It's going to be over before I know it. 
And I don't want to look back and say, you wasted it. I don't want to waste it. And you have Jesus expressing a very similar thought about himself and his ministry in these verses. Because Christ knew what he came to this earth to do. He came to offer himself as the atoning sacrifice for our sin. He came to offer new resurrected life, and we were talking about this a little bit last week, but he came to offer new resurrected life to those who would come to him by faith. He came to offer, or excuse me, to fulfill the prophetic words that were spoken of him in the Old Testament scriptures. And he knew that the window of time in which he was going to be doing these things was a very short window. It's a brief period of time. Every moment of time brought him closer to the day when he would be executed on a cross. There's a good lesson for us to observe in these words that Christ spoke to us. He's showing us that life is too short to waste it. It's too short to be wasted. Life is too short to to fail to understand the divinely ordained mission that the Lord has granted to us. Life is too short to be primarily consumed with the vanities of moving from one entertainment to another. I'm convinced, more so than ever, and I'm sure it's not just our culture, there are other cultures that this would be the case, but our culture is addicted to being entertained. And I find myself sometimes jumping right into that. And I think, why is that? Time is too short to just spend my time wanting to be entertained, wanting to be cozy, That's not the purpose that the Lord's granted us life, uh, or that's not the reason He granted us life, to just move from one form of entertainment to another. Jesus reminds us not to waste the time that we've been given. He certainly didn't waste His time. And He shows us one more thing in this portion of Scripture that I want to point out to us. And again, this is all under this banner of Jesus being the light of the world. And in verses 6 and 7, of John chapter 9, Jesus shows us that He completely changes the way we see. He completely changes it. Look at what what it tells us in those two verses. It says, Having said these things, He spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then He anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So He went and washed and came back seeing. When you were a kid, did you ever try and make face paint when you're out in the woods? Does anyone know what I'm referring to? Some of you may know about this, some of you may not. Do you know that if you take uh, two rocks together, this is something you learn when you're an eight-year-old boy, all right? You take two rocks, uh, pick them up. It depends on the kind of rocks, I guess, but there's probably some that wouldn't work. But you spit on one of them, then you rub them together. You just rub them together a little bit. You take your fingers, you dip it in that, and you can make nice face paint. And when I was a kid, I don't know that you'll try that. Uh, You know, but that's bonus content today if you'd like it. But when we were kids and we'd be out in the woods, we're like, all right, what do you want to do? It's like, let's paint our faces up. So spit on some rocks, put them together. And, uh, you know, someone told me this is the way people used to do it back in the day. It's like, all right, great. So we paint up our faces. We were like warriors in the woods, right? It's funny how appealing that seemed to me when I was a child, and then I read a portion of Scripture like this with Jesus spitting in the, in the dirt and making mud and smearing it, and uh, you look at it and you're like, oh, that sounds a little unpleasant, right? That sounds a little unpleasant. 
Uh, but yet, that's what the Scripture tells us happened here. And so, when I read a historical account like this, I try to put myself in the shoes, per, uh, uh, particularly of the man who was born blind. Right? You look at the, this man who was born blind. For decades, he's unable to see. For many years, he's forced to rely on the compassion of strangers. People routinely, in addition to the disability that he has, people are routinely making assumptions about his spiritual walk and the spiritual walk of his parents. Because they're looking at him and saying, yeah, he must be like this because he, he sinned. Or if he didn't, no, then people will be like, oh no, he was born blind. Well, then obviously his parents must have sinned. Because he, why would he be blind otherwise? Either he sinned or his parents sinned, right? So you have people making all sorts of, sum, of assumptions about him. But now you have Christ looking at this man with compassion and enabling him to see, and now many things are going to change for this man. And if you want to read further, I'd encourage you to read a little bit later on into the rest of chapter 9 and to the uproar that this miracle facilitated. But Scripture tells us here that Jesus combined his spit with the dirt and he makes mud. And then he took that mud and he anointed the man's eyes with it. So I don't know how that looked if he just kind of, you know, like placed it there, if he smeared the mud there. But either way, he's putting it, he's putting this all around the man's eyes. And, you know, if you have your sight, you probably would feel a little differently about this than this man. Because throughout the course of your life, you have experienced what it looks like when somebody looks at you funny. One of the benefits that this man, who was uh, blind, had was the fact that he had never seen what a cross look looked like. So you have Jesus doing something to him. You have this man just trusting whatever Jesus is doing, it must be a thing, okay? He smears it on his eyes, and there he is with, with mud all over his face. I would feel a little funny as a grown man with mud all over my face. You would probably feel a little funny with mud on your face. But that's what Jesus does to this man. And then Jesus asks this man to respond in faith to what was just done to him. Think about what Jesus requests of this man or what he tells him to do. Basically, the test of that response was going to be whether that man stayed right where he was or whether he obeyed what Jesus commanded him to do. So Jesus told him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Keep in mind, this would not be an effortless task for this blind man to do this. It's not just as easy as just getting up and walking somewhere when you can't see. It's not easy even just going, you know, little places, right? My office is right there. You know, I park my car out there during this time of year when it's dark. I have nightlights in the sanctuary here. They are mainly there. So I don't walk into these chairs when I'm leaving my office to get to my car when I leave here around 6.30 in the evening. So walking from there to there can involve stumbling. This man here is out in the open in an environment he can't control, and Jesus is saying, I want you to go there. I want you to walk to that pool, and I want you to then wash this off. Keep it on there until you get to the pool. Then I want you to wash it off. And he does what Jesus said. That's faith, isn't it? When Jesus says, listen, I want you to walk in a direction and I want you to trust me that it's going to work out and you may not always be able to see where you're going along the way, but I want you to walk in that direction and I want you to trust the outcome before you see the outcome. This is a test of faith. And so this man goes and he listens and he goes to that pool and he washes the mud off and he comes back 
seeing. Decades of blindness healed miraculously by Jesus. He comes back seeing. Let me say this as we finish up. Because yes, this was a, a physical miracle, but it's meant to illustrate a spiritual reality that I hope our hearts will latch onto because it really matters for our daily walk. When Christ redeems us, He grants us a brand new way of seeing. A brand new way of seeing. When we come to the point where we truly believe that He is the light of the world, like He says in this passage, we begin seeing things differently. We begin seeing things with the illumination that He supplies. We see ourselves differently. We see other people differently. We see sin and trials and ambition and opportunity and goals and eternity from a drastically different perspective compared to when we walked in darkness. Jesus completely changes the way we see. Christ is the light of the world, but He also desires to be the source of light in our lives. And what He does is He liberates us from walking in darkness. He inspires us to have compassion for those who cannot see, just as He had compassion on us. He reminds us not to waste the time that He's blessed us with. And He grants us a powerfully new perspective that allows us to begin seeing all things with the very eyes and the very mind in the very heart of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and for the privilege that it is to be able to look at these things together today. Lord, we're grateful for who you are and for the fact that you tell us that you are the light of the world and that ultimately if we're going to find light, we're going to be rescued and redeemed from walking in darkness. We need a relationship with you. So, Lord, we pray that you'd open our minds and our hearts to understand that need, that we would walk with you faithfully, that we would glorify your name in all matters and in all areas, and that we would not invite darkness into our lives any longer. Lord, you tell us in your word that, that you are the light and you, you enable us, you empower us not to walk in darkness like we once did. Lord, there's something about that darkness that we love. We love it. We find ourselves wanting it. We find ourselves craving it. Lord, we know it's not your desire that we crave darkness. So often when we invite those things into our lives, the wickedness and, and darkness that once enslaved us, we, we see one aspect of it and we convince ourselves that it's actually good and then we forget about the consequences and the pain and the difficulty that, that come when we allow these things into our lives because they end up ruining us. But Lord, we're grateful that you can rescue and redeem us even from our biggest mistakes. And we pray, Lord, that we would walk with you faithfully, that we would give over to you every aspect of our lives, that if we've been walking in darkness, if we've cherished darkness, if we've embraced it and welcomed it in, that we would kick it out and that we would walk in the new life that we have through you. Lord, we're grateful for the, the fact that you've enabled us to see with your eyes. And we just want to commit ourselves to you today. And we thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your grace and your love. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.